Wonderful. So we are joined by the wonders of the video link thingy by our friends in Ellen and also Mearns and also Stonehaven. And so let's just give them a cheer and a shout and a wave. There you go. Maybe even Lifestyle tomorrow night. Who knows? You might be there as well. Uh, It's great to see you. Uh, Before I get cracking with the Bible, just to briefly say, this is a very emotional moment for me and Taryn because this is the last Sunday that we'll be with this church before we head off on our sabbatical. And uh, to be honest, it's overwhelming. It's really, really overwhelming, the thought that our church family has made it possible. I knew I was going to cry. (laughs) It's made it possible for us to just take some time to uh, rest, to be refreshed in the Lord, to to invest in our relationship, invest in our marriage and our family life, and uh, just to, to come back as new and revitalized people and so to you know lots of people had a hand in that decision and making that possible but even just to the degree that you as a church family and in our other sites have endorsed it encouraged it uh pleased about it we're just so thankful and so uh yeah we're yeah it's going to be really amazing and uh we are so looking forward to coming back and uh, just beginning the next season of the life of our church together. So thank you. Okay, anyway, enough of the mushy stuff. Uh, I've been really stirred over the last few weeks um, uh, since the Notre Dame Cathedral went on fire. Many of you will have seen the images on TV of this building that had been a place of Christian worship, has been a place of Christian worship for 850 years and uh, suddenly it's on fire, and a building that took 183 years to build in 183 minutes was absolutely decimated. And, and it was a, just a startling image to see on the TV, wasn't it, if you saw it or in the newspapers. But what was most startling to me, and has left me really sort of out of sorts, is the response by the world to this building. Uh, you know, within hours, hundreds of millions of euros had been pledged for its rebuilding. You know, it was like suddenly the whole world said, we want that church to live. And, and we want people to be able to worship in that place for another 850 years or something like that. And I think what was so startling about it was that that's so unbelievably unusual. You know, in our society, often built church buildings are... Uh, turned into flats or, or nightclubs or pubs or just bulldozed to make way for something else. And nobody notices. Or, or, or uh, Actually, in some ways, the church, whereas in the past, up until very recently, the church has been perceived as being a generally positive thing to have in a community, in a society. Actually, even in the last two or three years, it feels like that's shifting. And so our society generally sees the church as ultimately not an especially positive thing or even a destructive thing to have in a so-called tolerant and, um, you know, peaceful society, intelligent society. And, and so, generally speaking, the society that we, we're in doesn't think, oh, I want that church to live. And I, I think why I feel really stirred about that is because, let's be honest, our architecture is not going to save us. We don't have any flying buttresses or... or um, you know, we have a wee bit of stained glass here, but in Mearns Academy or Mackey Academy or the Kirk Centre in Ellen, you know, the, the, uh, the architecture is not going to save us. And I can remember standing here, what, four or five months ago and saying that 
the presence of our church in this region for future generations is not a given. So every month for the last 20 years, on average, 10 churches have closed in Scotland. And so there's a really big question mark over every church and over the church in Scotland. And so the question then becomes, how do we become good stewards? How do we behave as good stewards for what the Lord has given us? Because let's be truthful for a moment. You know, we might not always recognize it because we can often see all the things that aren't working. But the Lord has been unbelievably kind to our church family over the last 10 or 11 years in particular. And it's actually astonishing. I don't know whether you know this, but something like just a little bit less than 200 children worship in our church every week. And many churches around our nation would give their eye teeth for 10 children, and we've got something like 200 children. It's just absolutely astonishing. And, and you know, we did the Easter egg hunt in, across all the different sites the other week, and 1,525 people who often, many of them not currently connected to our church, came along and were part of that. And our youth ministry is exploding with life, and there are young families everywhere, and, and this is not normal. You know, so if you could just... You know, we, we maybe just need to pinch ourselves occasionally and just n- let's agree to never take any of this for granted. Because it's so beautiful what Jesus has been doing in our midst over the last 10 or 11 years. And so therefore, this question of stewardship it becomes very, very important. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. How do we behave as good stewards of the church that we've been entrusted with? And so we're going to be continuing our series in, in uh, 2 Corinthians. And so if you've got, got your Bible, then now is the moment to look that up. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 is where we're going. And while you're turning to that, let me just explain a couple of important background features so that we understand where this is coming from. The first thing is to say, we've called this whole series Weak But Strong. Because that is the central message of 2 Corinthians. That, that, you know, as much as we might think that we're kind of a big deal and, you know, really quite good, actually the truth is that we're really weak. But the beautiful truth is that the Lord isn't dismayed by that, surprised by that, disappointed by that. The very opposite is true. He knows that because we're weak, he chooses us and through our weakness, his strength is glorified. And so, actually, almost like the central verse, although it's not right in the middle, it's in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. uh, The Apostle Paul reports this moment where he hears something from Jesus himself. And Jesus says to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. What an absolutely lovely thing to know. And so, the fact that we're really, really weak but God is strong, is very important for how we understand this passage. The other thing is, I thought James Juice, when, who's the site pastor here, when he was unwrapping the first few verses of this letter a few weeks ago, he, I, I just thought he, he brilliantly explained some of the, the context. As he said, you know, you know what it's like when you turn up at a, a, a family's house for dinner, and the couple, have, you've clearly just had an argument as you walk, you know, just before you walk through the door. Or you get picked up by a couple from the airport or something like that. And it's like, oh, this is so awkward. You know, they've obviously just been having a huge Barney in the car. And now we're all pretending that that didn't happen. Uh, actually, that is the context of this letter. There's been a huge argument, a whole load of upset in the Corinthian church. And... Uh, 
ultimately, it's relational discord that is the background for this. So, so people within the church have been falling out with one another. And also, and equally importantly, there's been a wedge driven between the Apostle Paul and some, some of the other leaders and the church itself. And both of those two things he understands are equally dangerous. If people start falling out with each other, the church is in a, the whole enterprise is under threat. Or if there's a, a wedge driven between the leaders of a church and the church itself, it's a dangerous position. And so he's wanting to speak into that. So 2 Corinthians, we're going to read chapter 2, verse 5 onwards. He says this, If anyone has caused grief, he's not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you to some extent. Not to put it too severely. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Now, instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. Another reason I wrote to you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. Anyone you forgive, I also forgive. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. That's it, that's the passage, slightly quirky passage that we're going to be uh, learning from this morning. So the question is, how can we behave as good stewards of the church family that we have? Or to ask it another way, what can we do today that will give our church the best possible chance of being great tomorrow. That's pretty much the deal. So the first thing that we need to do is to have an awareness of the opposition. An awareness of the opposition. I read a newspaper article recently, but it was from 2005, and it was about these two Japanese men, elderly men, Yoshio Yamakawa, who's 87, and Suzuki Nakochi, who was 85, and they had been hiding on an island in the Philippines for 60 years, and they believed that they were still at war, so they were part of the Japanese army, and for 60 years they'd been hiding out in this kind of really, really remote island, believing that at any moment the enemy would come. And I don't know whether you can imagine what that would be like to just be on high alert, every snap of a twig or every bush that's moving, and suddenly you think, oh, is this it? And so you're just standing ready. They kept a strict military regime, uh, you know, military discipline for that entire time. Any moment they were expecting something to happen. And, of course, for them, there was no war and there was no enemy. But the point is, for many of us as Christians, we live with the, precisely the opposite problem. We live as if there was no war. We live as, as, if, as if it was peacetime, when in fact we're engaged in a spiritual battle for the health and the eternal destination of our very souls. And we live, for many of us, much of the time, as if there were no enemy, when our opposer, our accuser, our enemy is Satan himself. It's a very precarious position to not fully understand our opposition. And what's so apparent from this passage is that Paul is crystal clear about what's really been happening in the church in Corinth. The source of all of this relational discord and the wedges that have been driven in between people and in between the leaders and the church, the source of all of that is the devil himself. 
So in verse 10, second half of verse 10, he says, I've forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. And really that's the assumption that underlies all of his writings. And you see it pop up in loads of different letters, not least, of course, the second half of Ephesians, where he's saying, listen, our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's against the rulers and powers and authorities in the heavenly realms. It's a, it's a, we are battling the devil and all of his minions. That's what's really going on here. And so actually what he's saying is that amongst all of this relational discord, some people have unwittingly become instruments in the hands of the enemy. Now that is a sobering thought, isn't it? that somehow, without even realizing it, we could become instruments in the hands of the enemy, uh, working against God and against the church. It's a wake-up call for us there. And, and I found this passage so helpful, because I don't know about you, but when I think about the schemes of the enemy, you know, what is the enemy doing in this world? I think about things like nations warring against nations, or I think about extreme global poverty or injustice or I think about the the modern day slavery thing or you know there are loads of things cancer or or um, malaria you know some of these things you think I, I can see the enemy's hand all over that stuff and of course that's absolutely true but what he's telling us here is that one of the um, main ways that the enemy would seek to come against the church is in everyday common or garden almost insignificant relational falling out and discord. And so we need to be aware. He says we're not unaware. And so therefore our teaching is we have to be aware of how the enemy is seeking to oppose us. And to be honest, Taryn and I as pastors, you know, we're not, my dad would say, we're, we're not as green as we're cabbage looking. You know, we, we've been around, we, we've been in this city for 15 years. We've seen churches Whole churches explode and then implode and then disappear without a trace. And it's never been about theology or philosophy or uh, structure. It's every, in every single occasion, it's been about people falling out with one another, about things that when they look back in 10 years' time, they'll think, how did we manage to fall out about that? And we see as pastors, people in our own church family, something gets into their heart. And they can't look, you know, people who they've been worshipping with for, for decades and would consider themselves to be the closest of friends, suddenly they can't look one another in the eye anymore. Or they feel antagonistic towards the church without even really being able to articulate why. And so, let's not be unaware of the opposition's devices that he uses. And when we can sense, whenever we can sense our own hearts being filled with fear, or distrust, or suspicion, or anger, or envy. It's so important. If I ever feel like that, what I should do is, I should not, before I say or do anything to anyone, I should just ask the question, where has this come from? What's the source of these feelings, these emotions, these thoughts that I'm having? Because perhaps we're about to become unwitting instruments in the hands of the enemy. So an awareness of the opposition is incredibly important. The second thing that we need is a high view of the church. I have three children, and when our first son was born, something was born in me. 
And what it was, was the desire, the need to protect. I'd never experienced that before, but, you know, I remember our son was born, and then we were there for a few hours, and then the midwife said to us, listen, you, you, you need to get some sleep, but you can't sleep here, so you need to go home to have a sleep. And I was like, oh, I don't want to do that. But they made me leave. And so I left, I drove away, I came back a few hours later, and when I came into the room, there was my wife, there was my baby, and there was this woman who I'd never met in a nurse's uniform holding my baby. And I was like, who the heck are you? You know, if I'd had a taser on me, I would have like used it. I would have been like, stand back, woman, that's my baby. And this, just this need to protect just suddenly was within me. And, and I remember a few days after that, we left, we'd left the hospital, and then our son started to get a little sniffle. I mean, it wasn't a cold, you know, you would, or flu or anything. It was just like a little bit of snot in one nostril. And I was like, right, we are taking this baby to the doctor. You know, deliver this baby to the doctor. Listen, doctor. You know, this child has got a virus within it that does not belong there, and you and I are going to sort it out. I was like, really protective. And I remember, you know, he gets to like two or three years old, and he starts going to nursery. And when we're, when we're in the, you know, I came, maybe came home from work one day, and Taryn's like, oh, he's made a little friend. I was like, well, who's his friend? What does his father do? You know, I was just like... <laughs> Is he polite at the meal table? It's just ridiculous things. But this need to protect, this desire to protect, is, is inherent within us all for the people and the things that we really love. And what you see in this letter is Paul's deep love, his affection. It's actually, in many ways, it's, it's the, um, the love of his life is the church. And his desire to protect... You know, often Paul gets a bad rap. You know, he, people think that he's, um, you know, he can be harsh, but really all he's doing is he loves the church to the degree that he'll do anything to protect her. And you can see that, for example, in chapter 2, verse 4, he says, I wrote to you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. And then he goes on to talk about this grief he feels at what's been happening in the church. He's just, he's, he loves the church so much that when he sees the church being wounded, he himself is wounded. It's actually not very easy to work out exactly what's been going on in this situation and what he's referring to with this person who's been, you know, uh, experiencing punishment and, and now he's being encouraged to be included back in the family. It's not clear who that person is. And the reason for that is because this letter that we have as two Corinthians is really four Corinthians. And forgive me if this gets a little bit confusing for a moment, but what's clear from one and two Corinthians is that we know that Paul planted the church in Corinth in about AD 50, something like that. And then he was there for about 18 months. He left and he got as far as Ephesus and then he heard in why he was in Ephesus that somebody had started to infiltrate the church and was a negative influence in the church. And so he wrote a letter that we'll call the warning letter to warn them, to say, listen, you can't, you can't let this influence damage the church. And then after that, so, so that letter is referred to, the reason we know it exists is because it's referred to in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. And then the Corinthians write back to him with questions about what he said. And so he then writes his second letter that is called 1 Corinthians in our Bible. And 
Uh, and then he hears some negative reports, and so he goes to visit Corinth himself. And whilst he's in Corinth, some other people have come in to influence the church, and they oppose Paul to his face, and they're clearly trying to undermine the relationship between Paul and the church. He's absolutely devastated, so he goes away and he writes his third letter, that again we don't have, but is referred to in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 3, and we'll call that the letter of tears. He writes this letter, he's just so distressed by what's happening. And then he hears, finally, that, that even though there are some people who are negative influences in the church, he hears that they've become repentant, they've become warm to him again, they're starting to receive his leadership and his authority. And so he writes his fourth letter that we have as 2 Corinthians. I know that's really, really confusing. So ultimately, we've got the warning letter, then 1 Corinthians, then the letter of tears, and then 2 Corinthians. And in nearly every case, there's somebody, some person or some group of people who are seeking to damage the church. And so we don't really know what the situation is that he's referring to here, but what we do notice is his grief. We do notice that his heart is broken because the church is being damaged. But what's also obvious is that he expects the Corinthians to feel the same way. He expects them to love their church. And to be wounded even as the church is wounded. And you can see that in verse 5. He says, he's not so much grieved me as he's grieved all of you. And in 1 Corinthians 5, when he's talking about this profoundly negative influence in the church, 1 Corinthians 5 verse 2, he says, you're proud about this. Shouldn't you have gone into mourning? And so my point is that we combat the enemy's schemes and devices. We combat the the enemy's kind of malevolent uh, um, attacks on the church by loving the church and by holding her in deep affection. A high view of the church. And the last one, the third one, is a commitment to long-term relationships. I, in another life, worked for a software company just by, beside London Bridge Station. And after I'd been working there for a little while, they gave me a mobile phone. And this is like way back before everyone had mobile phones. And it was like I'd been given a bar of gold. It was like, this is the most precious thing. In fact, I've got it here. Okay. So here, here it is. I promise this is, this is the very, my first ever mobile phone. Uh, it, it was a slightly quirky thing because you dialed into the front and then you had to speak into the back. And people used to come up to me on the Waterloo Station platform and say, excuse me. I think you've got your phone around the wrong way. <laughs> so no, I promise I haven't. Anyway, so, so, so they give me this phone, and I was like, this is amazing. And so I'm, you know, just hanging out with my friends after work, and I'm going, oh, have I got a phone call? You know, oh, let's have a look, you know. Uh, oh, I've had a missed call. Do you know what a missed call is? It tells me on the phone I've got a missed call. I was so excited about this phone. And then after about two years, I just went into work one day, and there was another phone on my desk. And they said oh, yeah, this is your upgrade. I was like, my upgrade? What are you talking about? I've got a phone. They said, oh, no, 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 that one's out of date now. You need to just get rid of that one. This is your new phone. I said, well, what do I do with this one? They said, throw it away. I thought, it'll come in handy one day, and it has. <laughs> they said, oh, yeah, and honestly, I think probably over the last 20 years or something like that, I, I think I've probably had 10 phones, 12 phones, something like that. And isn't that how our society works? It's like just, oh, that one's out of date now. It doesn't work very well. Just get another one. 
And actually, that's the way that our society deals with relationships. A few crosswords, a bit of upset, pull the ripcord, throw it away, start again, find a new friend. Jesus would say to us, not so with you. We're supposed to be in this for the long haul. Scary how easy, like in, in our context in, in this region, if we fall out with one another, we can just literally go down the road to another church and start a whole new set of relationships. And you could do that time after time after time, and you could still be in this area. You wouldn't even have to move house. But we shouldn't be like that. And so here is this man who's created havoc within the church in Corinth. And instead of saying to them, listen, this guy is just nothing but trouble. Get rid of him. He says the very opposite of that. And and specifically, he instructs the Corinthians to do three things that are, on the one hand, unbelievably surprising and, on the other hand, extraordinarily powerful. Verse 7, he says this, you ought to forgive him, you ought to comfort him, and you ought to reaffirm your love for him. These three weapons that the Lord has given us to combat the schemes of the enemy and the relational breakdown in the church and to make sure that we have long-term relationships, you ought to forgive one another, comfort one another, and tell each other that you love one another. Let's just take each one of those by turn briefly. The first thing is forgiveness. The word forgive appears six different times in just this one passage. One of our sons, when he was a toddler, he really liked building towers. And so, you know, you get like plastic bricks and stuff like that. He was so not up for that. What he wanted to build towers with was ice cream containers and toilet roll tubes and, uh, you know, butter things and just loads of plastic. And so we had this cupboard in our house where the washing machine and the tumble dryer were. And there was a little basket on the floor in there. And in there was just like, you know, some things that he could make a tower with. And the problem with having a cupboard that has plastic in it is that the plastic has a habit of multiplying. Does anyone know what I mean? You know, and so you, you, for a while there, you could open the cupboard, just a few little things in this basket on the floor, and pretty soon you're opening the cupboard and things are just raining down on you. You're just being, you know, you have to duck after you've opened the door because there's like ice cream containers and butter dishes just raining onto your head. And it got really, really difficult to use the washing machine because you had to kind of clear all this other stuff out of the way. We said, this is just ridiculous. So one time when he was at nursery, we went in and we just thinned out his collection while he wasn't there. So we just, let's just get rid of some of this stuff. We got a bin bag, we thinned it out, and we just left a small basket full of things on the floor. The problem is, like I said, plastic has a, you know, the ability to multiply in the cupboard. And so before long, once again, you're opening the cupboard, things just raining down on you. And in the end, one day when he was at nursery, We went into the cupboard, we took a bin bag, and we just threw away the whole lot. My point is, relationally, we've got to learn to empty the cupboard. We've got to learn to just embrace a lifestyle of forgiveness, not hold even the slightest thing against one another. We've got to get totally free. Get rid of all resentment, disappointment, bitterness, past hurts. Just empty out the whole cupboard if our church is going to be in it for the long haul. Forgiveness. The second weapon that he's given us is comfort. So here is this guy. He's been despicably behaved. You know, he's, he's um, really damaged the church. And, and the consequence of that is that people have 
dealt with him. You know, they, they've, they've told him what they really think and they've basically excluded him for a while from fellowship. And so now what this guy is living with is he's living with, a, a, you know, a, a double portion of shame with a side helping of consequence, right? So he's living with the consequences of his own actions. And um, we have a way in our society of dealing with people like that. You know, when we see someone who's living with a whole load of consequences and a whole load of shame and they've made a mess for themselves and now they're living with the mess that they've themselves created, what we say in our society is, we say, serves them right. Don't we? Serves them right. And so, uh, you know, often we'll look in our glass houses and we'll press our faces against the glass and we'll look down on that person who's living with the consequences of their own actions and we'll just go, serves them right. And yet Paul says, that's not how we're to deal with this guy. We're to step out of our glass house. We're to step down onto the narrow path or the wide path that's leading him to destruction. And we're to come and help him and comfort him, stand with him. We leave the serves you right unspoken. And instead we embrace and we include and we console and we comfort. We have to comfort one another. And lastly, the final weapon that he's given us is an affirmation of love. I'll never forget the first Christmas that Taryn and I were married. Um, we, we had a tiny little car at that time, and we, and we were driving all the way down to Devon, where Taryn's parents were from London, where we were living. And uh, I was already a bit uncomfortable, if I'm honest, because there were way more presents in the car than there would have been if, you know, before I was married. Uh, and um, everything was just so beautifully wrapped up with bows and tags and all of that, whereas my family, I mean, we had mostly wrapped things up, but just not to that degree, and so I was already a bit uncomfortable. We got there, it's quite late, Christmas Day starts, and I'm like, right, when are we going to open all the presents? And they were like, oh, no, 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 we don't open the presents till after lunch. I mean, really? And then... There was no parsnips, and there was soup. I mean, what kind of a family is this? <laughs> and then afterwards, instead of just having this 20-second ripping spree where people are just ripping this paper, you know, instead of that, the, the opening of the presents lasted all afternoon and into the evening, just one by one. What did you get, Grandma, you know? The point is all families do things differently. And in some families, the only way that you know that somebody loves you is through this series of winks and nudges and hints. And, you know, you just kind of have to read between the lines and you just get, it's like, I think when he pats me on the back and he's really rude to me, what he means is I love you. Do, 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 you know, some families operate like that. It's like, you know, oh, uh, yeah, good to see you. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, I think that means that he deeply affectionate towards me, and uh, yeah, great, great to see you, yeah, 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 okay, I think, I think that means we're, you know, this is a family that loves one another, I don't really know, and then in other families, they have this amazing way of communicating that they love each other, what they do, right, is that they use words, <laughs> you know, like their lips, their teeth, their tongues, their vocal cords, and they communicate with words, I love you. And Paul says, that's the kind of family that the church is to be. Verse 8. I urge you, therefore, 
to reaffirm your love for him. And so if we're, if we're going to stand the test of time, we need to get way better. It's not that we're not good, but we need to get way better at communicating to one another that we love each other. Do you love the person that you meet up to pray with during the week sometimes? Why don't you tell him? Do you love your small group leader? Why don't you tell him? Do you love your site pastor? Do you think that what they do is a, a sweet thing and a lovely thing and, and you love their teaching or you love the way that they pastor people or you love the vision that they have? For goodness sake, why don't you tell him? Affirmations of love. It's a powerful thing. Let's make sure that our love is never unspoken or assumed or unaffirmed. But instead, let's tell each other that we love each other all the time because the enemy will absolutely hate that. Why don't we stand?